Hey, good morning, everybody. I hope you're having a really awesome Memorial Day weekend. Um, I know that it's kind of the first big um, entrance into summer, so parents, I know that you're so happy to have all your little ones at home for the rest of the next 10 weeks. It's awesome, right? Um, no, it really, really is. I hope you're having a great weekend. I'm going to go and start us in prayer, and then I'm going to share with you a story. I uh, gotta thank you so much for the ability to stand before the church that I love so much and to share with them um, a little bit about what your word says about overcoming uh, the greatest obstacles in life and what it's like to truly live as an underdog, knowing um, that victory is guaranteed for us. God, I thank you for a chance to deliver your message today. I ask that you would speak to me to be your words and not mine, um, and that somebody somewhere, whether it's here or, or um, on the internet, um, would come to know you and to understand what it means to have a saving grace based on what your son did on the cross. We love you, God. Um, you are so good. I thank you so much for um, the nation that you have blessed us with. Um, I just ask that we would be mindful and remember um, how fortunate we are, um, but that that is not a, um, it's not something that we deserve. It's not something that we've earned. You've blessed us with that, and that's just part of how much you love us. God, you are so good. Pray, amen. Um, first thing I want to say is thank you so much for praying for my family the last week. We had a pretty significant scare with my Mimi and my grandma. Um, she is home from the hospital, so praise the Lord. Um, yep. Um, and so um, my, my mom and my dad are there right now helping take care of her and my Aunt Julie and Uncle Ed, and they're just doing a great job of making sure that she's comfortable and helping her get around. I think my dad installed um, some handrails for her yesterday in her hallway, so she's good, and she's going to try to be independent. Mimi, I love you. hope that you're listening. I know that you are. Um, but I, I want to talk about uh, one of the greatest underdog stories that I can think of, and you probably know where this is going because it's me, and I'm up here teaching, so I'm going to talk about what? I'm going to talk about hockey. So um, yeah, are you shocked? No, you're not. Um, so how many of you guys were alive in the year 1980, and you know where this is going already. I was not alive yet, um, but I've watched the movie Miracle probably 200 times. Um, it's about four or five times a year, um, realistically, that I watch it, and I'm trying to get Hawk to, I'm trying to get Riley to watch it, and um, she just can't sit through that whole movie. Um, but the movie, it, it, it was in a really tumultuous time um, politically in our nation's history. I'm sure many of you know what it was like to go through the Cold War crisis and, and just where U.S. And, and Russia stood as they headed towards the um, There was no reason for the American team to even compete with the Russian team. In fact, during the Olympic Committee meetings, um, th th they were talking about how in the world the U.S. was even going to place fifth or sixth at the Olympics. Because the way that it worked then is, is Olympians from the U.S., um, it wasn't like they are now. To where, like, when we send the U.S. men's basketball team, I mean, it's got LeBron James, it's got Kevin Durant, and it's got all of the best players in the world are all competing. It wasn't like that then. It was amateurs. And so the U.S. was sending 18-year-olds to compete in the Olympics against the Russians who were employed as soldiers. And so you've got 18-year-olds competing against people that are 28, 29, 30, 31, grown men, many of whom are, are regarded as some of the greatest athletes ever that were on that Russian team. And so there's no chance. They shouldn't have competed. And in fact, the U.S. played Russia in an exhibition game before the tournament, and they got beat 10 to 3. Not even close. 
And so the, the whole point going in is that they had limitations. And what the coach Herb Brooks did is, is he used those limitations as an excuse to change the way that hockey was played, and he was very creative, and he came up with a new way of playing. And so what happened is they stepped up and flourished in adversity, even after getting torched by Russia. And so they constantly learned, and they grew in the midst of these huge battles. Because it wasn't just the Russian team that they weren't as good as. There was nobody there that they had any business beating. And one by one, win, 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 win. And then they get to the game against Russia. And if you've ever seen the movie, it's such a cool moment where um, they've, got, they've got microphones down on the ice so that they can get the cracking of the ice and they're skating up to it. And it's just a huge deal. And I really wish that I was alive and old enough in 1980 to have watched that game for real. But every failure, every roster decision, every mistake, and every victory brought the U.S. to that moment in that game where they were competing against a team that 99 times out of 100 would mop the floor with them. But the greatest thing is they did not see that giant as an impossibility. I've heard, I've heard those guys, Mike Ruzioni, I've heard him speak a million times about the thing, and not once did they ever think that they couldn't beat Russia. I love the, there, there, there's a quote from, from the movie, um, Kurt Russell was playing Herb Brooks, and, and he, in the quote, it's my favorite quote from the entire movie, he says, great moments create great opportunity. So despite their history, the U.S. hockey team was not scared of the Russian team. And then you guys know how the, the end of the, the, the game goes on, and, and the U.S. wins, and you have Al Michaels say perhaps the most popular, the most quoted phrase in all of sports, he says, do you believe in miracles? And then the U.S. doesn't win the gold medal that day. They still have to go and beat Finland in the gold medal game. But they beat the Russians. They slayed the giant. So you can probably see where this is going. We're going to talk about slaying a giant this morning. Um, I just want to give you an illustration before we get going, before we open up. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We're going to do some reading this morning. Um, but can I get Bentley and Mr. Dave to come up here? I'm going to show you guys exactly what David was up against. So David wasn't as young as Bentley, um, but we do know that, that David was a young man. He was the youngest of all of the brothers, and Scripture makes a point to tell us um, that David was small. David was not a big guy. He was small. And so this is David, and if we know Goliath was around eight and a half, nine feet tall, this is Goliath, big, scary Goliath. So what we're going to do before we get going, I want everybody to cheer when I say Bentley's name. So we got Bentley David. Give him a high five. And then I want you to boo. He, he needs his confidence lowered down. So we've got Goliath. Yeah. And so, but before we get going, um, the, the, there, there's a scene in the story that we're going to get to that I'm going to focus on to where David shows up to fight Goliath. And how does Goliath respond? Goliath is embarrassed. He's like, do you think that I'm a dog? Like, this is who you would send to fight me. So you've got this giant, you know, amount of confidence in Goliath. He's so sure of himself. Exactly. And so, so you've got this giant, just overwhelmingly confident man sees this little boy come up to fight him. And this is, this is what would have happened. 
You know, he's not as tall as David would have been. He's not, he's a giant, but he's not quite as big as Goliath. But this is that we would have seen. And I have no doubt in my mind that this is the difference in size that David and Goliath would have felt, would have had. All right, good job, Bentley. Good job. Die in the story. So um, thank you guys. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and read. I know it's a lot, but it is the, it is, it's the coolest story in all of Scripture, I think. So the Philistines and Israelites faced each other on opposite hills with a valley between them. We're in 1 Samuel 17, now verse 4. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. Bentley, how much do you weigh? Like 60 pounds? Somewhere in there? 80 pounds? This is significantly heavier than Bentley, just the male armor that he's wearing, just a piece of the armor. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across the Israelites, Why are you all coming out to fight? He said. I am a Philistine champion, but you are only servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. What a stupid thing to say. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. Another translation says terrified and dismayed. Now David was a son of a man named Jesse. Jesse was an old man at that time, and he had eight sons. Jesse's three oldest sons um, had already joined Saul's army to fight the Philistines. David was the youngest son. His three older brothers stayed with Saul's army, but David went back and forth so he could help his father with the sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. One day, Jesse said to David, take this basket of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread and carry them quickly to your brothers and give these 10 cuts of cheese to their captain. See how your brothers are getting along and bring back a report on how they are doing. David's brothers here with Saul and the Israelite army at the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. So here's the situation. So you've got this, this giant valley, right? And this is where the, this is where the battle's gonna take place. And you got the Philistine army on one side and you got the Israelite army on the other side. And so the situation, just to picture it, neither side wants to run down in that valley first because what's going to happen? The first side that runs down in the valley loses their military advantage because the other side has the high ground. So you get both sides just standing up there. And every day for 40 days, while Goliath is going, or while David's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, he's working at home, going to check on his brothers, make sure they're still alive going back home, bringing food back to his brothers. So David, he's not even in the picture of what's going to happen. He's a runt. David's job is to simply go check on his brothers, come back, bring them food, and then help, help his dad to know if his kids are still alive. But back to the military, both sides understood the situation. Goliath understood this. The thing about Goliath, though, is he didn't care on a personal level who came to fight him. Goliath didn't care if he ran down into the valley because who's going to kill him? Nobody. He was a monster. 
and he's not afraid of defeat at the hands of any man. There was not one single soldier in the Israelite army who could conquer Goliath, and he knew it. That's why they were dismayed, and that's why they were terrified. So for 40 days, every day, Goliath is coming down, he's beating his chest, he's showing up with all of his armor, got his armor bearer coming with him carrying his shield, which that's an awful job because who knows how much that shield weighed. But he's marching out, strutting his stuff every day, and he's mocking God every day. He says, I defy the armies of Israel. So he's, he's literally coming up there and he's saying, whatever God you have, I don't care. However powerful your God is, I don't care. And he mocks God and his people every day for 40 days. Back to the text. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts that as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leaving for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. Soon the Israelite and Philistine forces stood facing each other army against army. David left his things with a keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath the Philistine came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. So just picture what's going on. So you've got this daily charade of the armies pretending that they're going to fight each other, but they're not going to because neither one of them wants to make the first step. And then you've got Goliath mocking God's people. David shows up. He sees that the battle's about to get heavy, and he's like, oh, my gosh, starts, you know, you can imagine him being worried for his brother's lives maybe. And then you have Goliath mocking, and he can hear that. Everybody can hear everything. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give that man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. How many of you guys want to go kill, kill Goliath, right? You want to be exempt from all of your taxes? David asked the soldier standing nearby, What will a man get for killing this Philistine and ending his defiance in Israel? Who is this Philistine anyway that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God? Man, what, what a question from David. Who is this guy that he's allowed to say these things about my God? And these men gave David the same reply. Yes, that's the reward for killing him. But when David's older brother, Eliab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing here? What about those few sheep that you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and deceit. You just want to see the battle. What have I done now, David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. And then David's question was reported to King Saul, and the king sent for him. So David is approaching the king. Don't worry about this guy, David told him. Don't worry about this Philistine. I'm going to go fight him. Imagine Bentley walking up to Michael. Michael's probably about the same size as King Saul. He was a big guy too. And, and Bentley walks up and he's saying, don't, don't worry about this giant Dave. I'm, I'm going to strike him down. I got him. For one thing, there is no way that Amanda would let that happen. <laughs> Secondly, Michael would be like, your parents are going to kill me. It's not going to happen. But David is so confident in himself that even when Saul replies, don't be ridiculous. There's no way that you can fight him and possibly win. You're only a boy and he's been a man of war since his youth. David was so confident that he persisted. 
I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb, I go after it with a club and rescue the, lion, the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. So I finally consented. Go ahead. May the Lord be with you. So then Saul gave David his own armor, a bronze helmet, and a coat of mail. David put it on, strapped the sword over it, took a step, and said, Nope, <laughs> I'm too little. <laughs> said, I can't wear this stuff. It's not going to work. I'll admit that I'm little now. I can't go in these, he said. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. He picked up five smooth stones from a stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then armed with only his shepherd's staff and a sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. So this again, picture David, picture Goliath. David's walking out there with a staff and a bag of rocks and a sling. It reminds me of that scene from Lord of the Rings, right, where Gandalf has the stick and he's just shouting at the monster, you shall not pass. So just picture David looking at Goliath and he's like, buddy, you're not getting past me. Like, you're going to die today. Goliath was so confident because he knew there wasn't a man who could defeat him. The issue for Goliath is David's confidence was not in a man. So David said to Saul, we saw it right here, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. I'm going to go and fight him. The Lord rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he's going to rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And at this point, Goliath is embarrassed. He walks out towards David with his shield bare ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. Am I a dog, he roared at David, that you would come at me with a stick? And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Come over here, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals, he yelled. David replied, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel, and everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. As Goliath moved closer to the attack, David quickly ran out to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He hurled it with his sling and hit him in the forehead. And the stone didn't just bounce off his head. It says the stone sank into his skull and Goliath stumbled and fell face down on the ground. Suffered such a traumatic brain injury that he died on the spot. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over, pulled Goliath's sword from its sheath, and he cut his head off. David, more than any other story in all of Scripture that I can think of, was the ultimate, absolute underdog. He brought nothing to the table except for a stick and a sling. But he was used by the Lord to defeat the giant. He ignored the armor, and he used a slingshot. When everybody else backed down, David stepped up, 
and he used years of protecting sheep to teach him courage and reliance on the Lord. And most importantly, David viewed God's people, his future kingdom, as people that he was charged to protect. And that played a major role in the story too. Though he should have been terrified of Goliath, he never, never wavered in his conviction to take him head on. So how did David win? There, there, there's a verse right here in the middle that says, this is the Lord's battle. That is how David won. This was a battle that was directed and charged and, 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 and used by God to declare his glory and protection over his people. And David just trusted. This wasn't, this wasn't David's battle. This was God's battle. And David was just along for the ride. David's nothing. Like he's, he's faithful. And we see later on that David becomes a really awesome um, general. He knows a lot about military and fighting. He's going to grow and develop into that. But right now, David's a boy. He is bringing zero to the table. Nothing. He's not enough. Even if David had showed up with the world's most powerful slingshot, he's not enough. All Goliath has to do is get one hand on him and he's dead. But the Lord directed the stone because David was faithful enough to throw it. Because the power of our God is made perfect when we are weak. Being an underdog is a really good thing, and I'm explaining to you why. Moses, was he an underdog or did he have the upper hand? He was an underdog. David was an underdog multiple times. Israel and the battle of Jericho, led by Joshua, were they underdogs or did they have the upper hand? They were underdogs. Peter, multiple times, showed that he was far too weak to be handling the things that he was doing. He was an underdog. The little boy with the fish, he brought a basket of food. And because of his faithfulness, Jesus used it to feed a, 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 a thousands of people. The Lord uses weak underdogs over and over again. And let me tell you something. That's us. How many of you guys have ever been called by the Lord to go and share the gospel with somebody, and you're like, man, I just can't do that? Or how many of you guys have been, have been called to maybe... Um, to leave a place or to leave a job or, or to move across the country and it's like, God, I can't do that. I don't want to do that. Or been called to, to leave somebody that you're dating and you're just like, man, I'm scared of being alone. I don't want to do that. God calls us to do impossible things knowing that we can't handle those things and we need to understand that we can't handle those things. Being an underdog means that we get to watch God at work through us. This means that when we're at our best, when we're actually being made perfect, it's when we're at our weakest points in life. It's when we're our most vulnerable. It's when we're at our most desperate. Those are the times in our life when we rely on the Lord that he shows up and he does his thing. If David had ran into battle and without God being there, what would have happened? He'd have been killed. Saul, who was a terrifying man in his own right, I'm sure, because he was the picture-perfect king that the nation of Israel had been crying out for. God gave them exactly what they wanted. 
charismatic, strong, handsome, great fighter, super athletic, big, big guy. Saul was too scared to take on Goliath. He didn't do it either. It was impossible. But David trusted God. He showed up and he did his thing. I mentioned a verse a second ago about how God's power, the power of Jesus is made perfect in our weakness. That comes from one of my favorite texts in all of scripture. It's 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. And it says this, three different times, this is Paul speaking, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. He's talking about the thorn in his flesh. He says, each time I said my grace is all you need, my power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That is why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul faced a giant in his life too. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something so severe, something that weighed on him, something that grieved him so much that he's begging with the Lord over and over and over again, I I need you to take this away, I can't do it. And God's like, no. I'm leaving this in your life because this is what's making you weak, and when you are weak, then I can make you strong. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. David was so weak compared to Goliath. Paul was so weak compared to his thorn. Both in me and you are incredibly weak compared to our sin. Is there a single person in this room that can overcome sin on your own? Not a single one. And if you think you can, you're wrong. The Lord, though, man, my, my God's not weak. David's God, not weak. For David and Paul and me and you, God has shown up. His word tells us that he has defeated Satan. He has won. Like David had a giant in his life, and it was Goliath, and you and I have an even bigger giant that we have to deal with. The enemy that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, the one that is creating sin in our lives and giving us temptation and the one that's causing death and pain and sorrow and guilt and shame, he is a far greater giant than anything Goliath could ever give to David. He is active and, 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 and he is evil. But my God defeated him. My Jesus defeated him. The grave could not hold my Jesus. And Satan may have thought he was going to win, but he did not because Jesus rose from the grave, conquering death for all of eternity, forgiving you and I of our sin. He won. And, 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 and I picture the story at, at the end of the story where David walks over and you know, Goliath is like, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to feed you to the wild animals. And David's like, no, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to feed you to the wild animals. And then David walks over to him and what does he do? Chops his head off with a sword that he can probably barely pick up. And, and, it, and it just brings me, like every time I, I, I think about the end and how Jesus is going to win in Revelation 19, and we see that Jesus is very much going to do the same thing to his enemies. If he can use a young boy to overcome Goliath, and if he can use a mess of a man in Paul 
to lead an entire generation of people to a saving grace in Jesus Christ. Why in the world will we doubt his power and his interaction in our lives? Why? At any given moment, today, tomorrow, next week, this week, why would we ever doubt God's power in our lives? Life is hard. Life is scary. We walk through stuff that we have no idea how I'm going to progress through this. Man, if I was in Steve's, George's shoes right now, man, God bless Steve. I couldn't handle that. We walk through stuff that is so hard. But why do we doubt that God is capable of overcoming all things? Here's a truth for you this morning. If God doesn't do anything else for you until the day that you die, God does nothing else for us. He has already done far more than we could ever expect to receive or deserve. And you know what? It's enough. If God doesn't do anything else for us, he's already done enough. Because sin, the giant in your life, has been defeated. And, and, and if you don't know Jesus, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus, or you're unsure, that's, that is so relevant to you this morning because I'm telling you, despite the things that you may be so worried about in your life, Jesus has overcome all of those things. They don't matter. Because at the end of the day, all that's going to matter is if you know Jesus or if you do not. Here's a humbling fact. David wasn't enough. And you know what? You're not either. Whatever adjective you want to throw in, you are not strong enough. You are not wise enough. You are not rich enough. You are not good enough. You are not beautiful enough. You are not smart enough. You're not. You're not enough. But your giants are not invincible. So you may not be bringing enough to the table to overcome your giants, but guess what? They're not invincible. But you better rely on the Lord. If David had showed up without the Lord's help, he would have died. But God's power is made perfect in our weakness. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Do not be surprised when the giants in your life appear to be too much for you to handle. Because they are. But remember, your God is not a God who loses. He doesn't ever lose. There is no greater giant than Satan, but he's already secured that victory. Nothing will ever take away what those college kids did in 1980 against the Russians. Nothing can take that away from them. Nothing will ever take what Jesus did away from you. What Jesus did on the cross for you, that's not going away. Nobody can ever take away from you what Jesus did for you. Your sin has been forever erased from history. It's done. Your sin is finished. The telest die. It's, it's gone. And so if you're walking through guilt or if you're walking through shame or apprehension or anxiety, I'm here to tell you that that, that is it's a giant. I know. It is perfectly normal. 
I don't think there's a person in here that hasn't walked through all of those things at some point in their life. You're going to. I can promise you that. I can promise you that you're going to wake up one day this year and you're going to be so stressed that you have no idea how to even get up out of bed. You're going to have so much anxiety that you don't even know how to get through the day. You're going to have so much sadness that you don't know how to make it through the week. You're going to be so fearful. I, I, I know it. I got the phone call a week and a half ago about my Mimi, and, and, and man, I, I was joking with her the other day, um, yesterday, that she's the most important person in my life, but man, other than Sharon and my kids, I don't have an argument to make that she's not. And praise the Lord that she's home now, but, but at some point, she's not going to be. At some point, I'm going to have to walk through this all over again, because it's part of life. At some point, I'm going to have to walk through this with Either I'm going to walk through it with Sharon or she's going to walk through it with me. It's going to happen. But you know what? If God never does anything else for you and me, he's done enough. Because I know where my Mimi's going. I know where my wife is going. I know where I am going. Because we know the Lord. And he says it's finished. And so as Philip comes up here, we're going to do another song. Um, man, I, I, I don't normally do this when I, when, I, when I preach. I like to be done and get off the stage and go home and take a nap. Um, but man, I, 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 want, I want you to know Jesus. And, and, and I'm not going to be naive enough to think that every single person in this room does know the Lord. Because that's probably not true. I mean, if you're watching on Facebook... Um, if you're online, you need to know that Jesus won, and he's offering you a grace, he's offering you a life, he's offering you an eternity that you can't get on your own. You cannot conquer the, the giant on your own. So stop trying to do it by yourself. So if you want to know what that looks like, um, to walk into a relationship with Jesus, come talk to me, come talk to Chris, talk to Philip. Laura, any of us, let's pray. God, thank you so much for, um, and thank you so much for me being so weak. It just takes off so much pressure, and it takes off so much, um, so much self-disappointment when I can't win by myself. God, you are so good, and you are so strong, and you are so faithful. And you're victorious every time. Even if it doesn't look like it, you are. Even if some, that someone that we know and that we love is, is, is sick, or if someone that we know and we love goes home to be with you, you are victorious. And nothing that happens in this life has anything to do with the relationship that I have with you because of Jesus. You rescued me from my sin, and that's all that I need. So God, help me to trust you. Help our church to trust you. Help my family to trust you. Because you know what is best, and you're doing what is best. And when we're at our lowest and weakest points, the moments that we're so scared and terrified and dismayed, you make, you make all things good and all things new.
God, you are so good. And I thank you so much for what your son has done for us. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.